This is the best podcast on the planet. I'm not being biased at all. Thanks for listening, supporting, sharing, and subscribing to the Mindful Farm D podcast. Subscribe today wherever you listen to stay informed. Share with a few friends. Email Dr. Matman Harrell at themindfulfarmd at gmail.com exclamation point. Connect on Instagram at themindfulfarmd. Check out drmattmanharrell.bio.link for everything about the podcast. A thousand thanks and stay mindful. Mindful Log, February 23rd, 2023. Just who is to blame when anything noteworthy occurs as an infant nation seeks to identify itself? The process of being is quite complex and barely understood for the individual, let alone for an entire nation, even with today's technological, philosophical, and sociological advances. Imagine being there at the beginning of America's birth as a distant observer. You see the sudden spark of awakening, an electric jolt of rebellion that conceives a desire to be free from tyranny and oppression. As a distant observer, you root for the cause with a grand jubilee as you witness the birth of hope so potent it's contagious. And yet something arrests your celebration as you realize that this infant nation would become the very oppressors they sought to be free from. With seemingly simple universal truths staring them in the face, this new creation would don the same old clothes of oppression. Universal truths they believed, but perhaps did not truly understand how to live by. Like the fact that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, such as the right to live free and the right to pursue happiness. Who or what is to blame for the inhumane treatment of an entire race of people? It's 1890. Slavery has been abolished for 25 years. Idaho becomes the 43rd state of the United States of America. The National American Women's Suffrage Association is established. And Frederick Douglass, a former slave, delivers a speech in Washington, D.C. to the Bethel Literary and Historical Society of Washington. Douglass's speech would refute popular race relation claims that Negroes were the problem in America. Instead, Douglas uses his literary genius to describe the real issue with American race relations, namely that African-Americans are fighting to maintain the right and privileges granted to them during the Civil War and Reconstruction. The following is a reading of Douglas's speech. Frederick Douglass 1890, Speech on the Negro Problem. Nowhere else outside of the courts of law and the Congress of the United States have I heard vital public questions more seriously discussed. The men selected to address you know very well that what they may utter is subjected to close scrutiny and severe 
discussion. Mere rant, bombast, and self-inflation may pass elsewhere, but not here. For this reason, and for my own self-respect, I shall endeavor to say only what I believe to be the truth upon what is popularly called the Negro problem. My first thought respects the importance of calling things by their true names. This importance cannot be overestimated or overstated. Truth is the fundamental, indispensable, and everlasting requirement in obtaining right results. No department of human life can afford to dispense with truth. The carpenter cannot join his timbers without having the parts of contact perfectly true to each other. The mason cannot build a wall that will stand the test of time and gravitation without applying the plumb and making the wall vertical and true. No train or cars is safe on the road where the relation of the rails are not true. No shot is certain of its aim where the gun barrel is not true. As in mechanics, so in politics, morals, manners, metaphysics, and philosophies, nothing can stand the test of time and experience that does not stand on the unassailable, indestructible, unchangeable foundation of truth. Considering how important this truth is, it seems strange that falsehood should hold such sway in the world. One main advantage by which error is able to darken, blight, and dominate the minds of men is the skill of its votaries in using language deceitfully and pandering to prejudice by misstating and misapplying terms to the existing relations of men. It has been well said that in an important sense words are things. They are especially such when they are employed to express the popular sentiment concerning the Negro. To couple his name with anything in this world seems to damage it and damage him likewise. Hence, I object to characterizing the relation subsisting between the white and colored people of this country as the Negro problem, as if the Negro had precipitated that problem, and as if he were in any way responsible for the problem. Though a rose by any other name may smell as sweet, it is not in good taste to give it a name that suggests offensive associations. There are, on the other hand, things that are in themselves revolting and should not be given fair-seeming names. The slaveholders understood this principle well enough. Slavery lost something of its offensive aspect when it was called a domestic institution or a social system and other like names. Emancipation was made to look dangerous when it got itself called an experiment, although slavery itself was an experiment and liberty is the normal condition of man. The Negroes were the cause of the war, said Mr. Lincoln. A straight way, the loyal soldiers of the Republic began to kick and beat the poor Negroes on the banks of the Potomac, and the Irish began to hang, stab, and murder the Negroes in New York. It is dangerous even to a dog to be given a bad name. I am, therefore, in favor of employing the truest and most agreeable names to describe the relation which at present subsists between ourselves and the other people of the country. Again, another advantage to error, and one which is often employed with marked skill and effect in the presentation to the minds of men of what may call half-truths for whole truths and thus making a sweet and wholesome truth the cover for a bitter falsehood. A counterfeit nearest in likeness to what is genuine is always most likely to impose upon the unskillful. 
a lie ceases to be very dangerous when it parts with its ability to deceive. The devil is less dangerous as a roaring lion than when transformed as an angel of light. The application of these homely truths and familiar examples will become apparent in the discussion I propose of what is popular but improperly called the race problem. It seems that the American people have a special liking for this mathematical formula as applied to the Negro. They seem determined to keep his brain forever employed and his time forever occupied in solving a great variety of problems and generally to his disadvantage. As soon as he solves one, another is propounded to him. And when he thinks good, easy soul, his work is done, he finds a new one invented. A new burden imposed and a new hardship inflicted. There may be rest for the weary, but there seems at present no rest for the Negro. He has been solving problems during all his history. I have before referred to this place, I think, to the fact that the Negro was confronted 200 years ago by what was considered a great religious problem, one which was very difficult of solution. That problem was, ought the Negro to be baptized in water and admitted to membership in the Christian church? This was, as I have often said, considering time of it, a tremendous problem. As in our day in regard to Negro problems, the opinions of the wise and great were strongly pronounced and much divided. The right of the Negro to baptism was fiercely disputed, especially by those who owned themselves, who owned them as slaves. What is plain to all now was dark and doubtful to many then. It is easy to fancy that men spoke of it with bated breath and saw in the Negro's baptism a menace to the peace and stability of society as well as of slavery. For to baptize the Negro and admit him to membership in the Christian church was to recognize him as a man, a child of God, an heir of heaven, redeemed by the blood of Christ, a temple of the Holy Ghost, a standing type and representative of the Savior of the world, one who, according to the Apostle Paul, must be treated no longer as a servant, but as a brother beloved. Viewed in this light, his admission to baptism into the church was a matter for the gravest consideration. It touched the money nerve of the Christians of that day, for their wealth was largely invested in Negro flesh and blood. It was well said that the proposition was novel, extraordinary, and full of danger. It would impair the value of the slave, and it would put in jeopardy the authority of the master. They were right. And if the Negro is to be regarded as a Christian, he could not be regarded as a heathen. And as the Bible sanctioned only the enslavement of heathen, the Negro Christian could not be bought and sold, enslaved and whipped according to the requirements of the relation of master and slave. For every view they seemed then take of the proposition to baptize the Negro was rank radicalism and deserved stern resistance at its inception. To the credit of the church and its ministers, it must be said that one learned an able divine in the person of Dr. Godwin was equal to the situation. He met the arguments of the opposition to Negro baptism in a book of 200 pages in which he endeavored to show that baptism would not impair either the value of the slave or the authority of the master. 
His argument was a curious one. It divided the Negro into two separate parts, giving one to the Lord and the other to the slaveholder and leaving nothing whatever of soul, body or spirit to himself. Baptism, he said, freed the Negro from the bondage of the devil, but not from the bondage of his earthly master. The controversy over this problem was long and furious, and the Negro only won a partial victory after all. The matter was finally settled, as usual, by a kind of compromise. The Negro was baptized and admitted to the church, but a sort of second table was set for him. He could take the Lord's Supper only after his white brethren had finished eating the bread and drinking the wine. He was not even allowed to enter the same door of the sanctuary by which his white brethren entered. A separate door was cut for him in the wall, a sort of hole in the wall leading to a high and dark place in the gallery, where his presence could give no offense to the Lord's white children on the floor. It is strange that this state of things did not disgust and repel the Negro, make him an infidel, and drive him from religion altogether, but it did not. He clung to religion all the same. Believing that half a loaf was better than no bread, he took what he could from the church, kept on praying and singing, and sometimes shouting. He could pray as fervently for the conversion of the scoundrel who tore his flesh with the lash as for his best friend. He was made to think that his offensive black skin on earth would be changed for a white one in heaven. It was a strange fancy, but quite a natural one, when we see the importance given to color in the problems before us in our day. Another problem greatly disturbed the consciousness during the time of slavery. It was this. Can a Negro contract a valid marriage? If he could and could enforce his right to his wife and children, it would prove an inconvenient limitation on the power of his master. If what God has joined together, no man shall put asunder, the right to sell the wife from the husband and the husband from the wife must cease. In the minds of the men who had to deal with it, no such limitation in the right of the master could be allowed or tolerated for a moment. The master must have the right to buy and sell as he pleased was the solution to that problem. One terrible evil of this solution of the marriage question is still seen in our land. Unable to contract valid marriage, the Negro felt himself unrestrained and licensed to do as he pleased. He was not expected to limit his conduct by any rule or principle or morality or decency, but took to himself the freedom of the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air. He had in law no wife, no family, no children, and did not own himself. The consequence of this state of things may be seen very often in our society at the police court and elsewhere, and the strange thing is, the very people who are responsible for this immorality and crime make merry over our wretchedness and take solemnly about the terrible Negro problem. Happily for us and happily for our common country, as we shall see later on, the southern solution of this Negro problem has now been unsolved by the act of emancipation and the superior civilization of the loyal American people over the people of the old slaveholding states. Another troublesome problem presented to our Christian country was whether the Negro should have the help of the Bible with which to get to heaven, whether in fact the command to search the scriptures imposed an obligation or duty on him. Our southern brethren, 
with whom we have always been profoundly sympathetic even unto this day, decided this problem against the Bible and against the Negro as usual. They made it a crime to be punished with banishment, imprisonment, and stripes for anyone to teach the Negro to read. Yet the descendants of these same men, with the education of their fathers, and with the antecedents of their fathers, are now asking us in piteous tones to allow them in their superior wisdom and goodness of heart to solve what they are pleased to call the Negro problem of today. They are crying out lustily to the nation, like demons tormented before their time. Hands off! We want no federal authority and want only local self-government. We want to be let alone. They tell us that they know the Negro and that they can manage him better than anybody else. They can manage his wages, his voting, and his education, and all that pertains to him. I hope the nation will not let them do any such thing. They have shown a strange inaptitude for such a task. The point with them is not what is right, but what will best suit themselves. But again, in the history of the Negro, we had another perplexing problem. It was this, and this was in some sense a national problem. Can the Negro be made a soldier? This too was very serious problem for the country. For it was a matter of union or no union, of life or death. For at one time it needed all the material which the nation could command to settle the problem of our national existence. It will be remembered that at the beginning of the war, it was given out that no Negro need apply. He was not to be allowed to shoulder a musket, carry a knapsack, or wear a Union uniform. The glory of the battlefield was to be won wholly by white men. The Negro might dig, but not fight. He might be a servant, but not a soldier. He might carry a pickaxe, but never a musket. In considering this problem, the nation, strangely enough, shut its eyes to the fact that in the history of the revolution, the Negro fought bravely for American independence, and in the War of 1812, he even extorted praise for his valor from the stern lips of General Andrew Jackson. His fighting qualities were nobly admitted by the hero of New Orleans. In spite of this, it was insisted that the Negro was a born coward that could never make a soldier, that he would run at the sight of a gun. Time and events, however, helped the Negro and the nation in the solution of this problem, as I think they will help in the solution of any others that may arise. Fort Wagner, Port Hudson, Vicksburg, James Island, Olesty, Petersburg, Richmond, a cloud of witnesses rise before us to solve the problem of the Negro's soldierly qualities. Whether the Negro could be educated was another problem, and I think this has been solved to the satisfaction of all candid men. He would be a dishonest man, or an amazingly stupid one, who in the face of the thousands of Negro teachers, the hundreds of Negro preachers, doctors, lawyers, authors, and editors with which the country is now studded, should insist, as it was once insisted, that education was impossible to the Negro. But the greatest problem for the Negro was whether he could, with safety, be made free. Good men knew that slavery was wrong, but how to get rid of it was the great question. Neither the pulpit, nor the press, 
nor the statesman could see a solution of the great problem. And yet that problem has been solved. The Negro is free, and the country is cleansed of its greatest curse, crime, and scandal. There were terrible things to happen upon the passing away of slavery. The freedom of the slave was the signal of ruin. There was to be no more cotton, no more sugar, no more work done by the Negro, and the South was to become a howling wilderness. But against all these dark forebodings, these pictures of dismal terror, the late was made short work of the whole problem. That sturdy old Roman, Benjamin Butler, made the Negro a contraband. Abraham Lincoln made him a free man, and General Ulysses S. Grant made him a citizen, and not one of these terrible things have happened. But now, though all this has been done, though slavery has been abolished, though the Negro has been freed, though he has become a citizen, though the Union has been saved in part by his valor, the Negro is not to be let off quite yet. He is to be the victim of a new deal by precipitating upon the country a false issue. He is to face another problem. Now that the Union is no longer in danger, now that the North and South are no longer enemies, now that they have ceased to scatter, tear, and slay each other, but sit together in halls of Congress, commerce, religion, and in brotherly love, it seems that the Negro is to lose, by their sectional harmony and goodwill, all the rights and privileges that he gained by their former bitter enmity. This, it is found, cannot be accomplished without confusing the moral sense of the nation and misleading the public mind. Without creating doubt, inflaming passion, arousing prejudice, and attracting to the enemies of the Negro the popular sympathy by representing the Negro as an ignorant, base, and dangerous person, and by presenting to those enemies that his existence to them is a dreadful problem. With their usual cunning, these enemies of the Negro have made the North partly believe that they are now contending with a vast and mysterious problem, the mere contemplation of which should cause the whole North to shudder and come to the rescue. The trick is worthy of its inventors and has been played for all that it is worth. The orators of the South have gone North and have eloquently described this terrible problem, and the press of the South has flamed with it, and grave senators from that section have painted it in most distressing colors. Problem, problem, race problem, Negro problem, has, as Junius says, fitted through their sentences in all the mazes of metaphorical confusion. The true problem is not the Negro, but the nation. Not the law-abiding blacks of the South, but the white men of that section who by fraud, violence, and persecution are breaking the law, trampling on the Constitution, corrupting the ballot box, and defeating the ends of justice. The true problem is whether these white ruffians shall be allowed by the nation to go on in their lawless and nefarious career, dishonoring the government and making its very name a mockery. It is whether this nation has in itself sufficient moral stamina to maintain its own honor and integrity by vindicating its own constitution and fulfilling its own pledges or whether it has already touched that dry rot of moral depravity by which nations decline and fall and governments fade and vanish. The United States government made the Negro a citizen, 
Will it protect him as a citizen? This is the problem. It made him a soldier. Will it honor him as a patriot? This is the problem. It made him a voter. Will it defend his right to vote? This is the problem. This, I say, is more a problem for the nation than for the Negro. And this is the side of the question far more than the other, which should be kept in view by the American people. What these problem orators now ask is that the nation shall undo all that it did by the suppression of the rebellion and in maintenance of the union. They ask that the nation shall recede from its advance in the path of justice, liberty, and civilization. They boldly ask that what was justly and gratefully given to the Negro in the hour of national peril shall be taken from him in the hour of national security. They ask that the nation shall stulify itself and commit an act of national shame which ought to make every lover of his country cry out in bitter indignation and unite as one man to oppose. A demand so scandalous and so shocking to every sentiment of honor and gratitude. And from whom does this demand come? Not from who gave their lives to save the nation, but from those who gave their lives to destroy it. Not from the free and loyal North, but from the rebellious and slaveholding South. Not from the section where men go to the ballot box with the same freedom from personal danger as they go to church on Sunday, but from that section where personal safety is endangered where federal authority is defied, where the amendments to the Constitution are nullified, where the ballot box is tainted by fraud and red-shirted intimidation makes a free vote impossible. It comes from the men who led the nation in a dance of blood during the four long years and who now have the impudence to assume to control the destiny of this republic as well as the destiny of the Negro. And what are the reasons they give for demanding of the nation this retreat from its advanced position? They are these. They tell us that they are afraid, very much afraid. They are alarmed, very much alarmed, by the possibility of Negro supremacy over them. This is the calamity from which they would be delivered, and with eloquent lips and lusty lungs, they are all calling out, Men and brethren, save us from this threatened and terrible danger. My reply to this alarm is easy. It is that the wicked flee when no man pursueth, that the thief thinks each bush an officer, that the thing they pretend to fear can never happen, and that blank absurdity is written upon the face of it. The eagle with fierce talon and bloody beak screaming in terror at the approach of a harmless black bird would not be more absurd and ridiculous. The superior intelligence of the whites the comparative ignorance of the blacks, the former dominion of the whites and the former subjection of the blacks, the habit of bearing rule of the whites and the habit of submission by the blacks make black supremacy in any part of our common country utterly impossible. But supposing such an occurrence possible, what hardship would it impose? What wrong would it inflict? Who would be injured by it? If the blacks should get the upper hand, their rule would have to be regulated by the Constitution and the laws of the United States. They could not discriminate against white people on account of race, color, or previous condition without findings the iron hand of the nation laid heavily on their shoulders. The white people of the South are the rich, the Negroes the poor. The white people are the landowners, 
the Negroes are the landlers. The white people of the South are numbered with the ruling class of the nation. They have behind them every possible source of power. They have railroads, steamships, electric telegraphs, the army and the navy. They have the sword and the purse of the nation behind them, and yet they profess to be shaking in their shoes, lest the eight million of blacks shall come to rule over them and their brethren, the 50 million of whites. Now I am here to say that there is nothing whatever in this supposition. I can hardly call this invention a cunning device, for the pretense is too often, too transparent, too absurd to rise even to the dignity of low cunning. It is an old ragged pair of trousers and an old mashed and battered hat of the last century stuck upon a pole in a field where there are neither crows nor corn. It is the cry of fire by the thief when he would divert the officer of the law. It is, as I have said, a red herring to divert the hounds from the true game. And the strange thing is that any class of our citizens, white or black, can be deceived by it. But black supremacy is not the only string on the harp of a thousand strings upon which our southern brethren play. They are not merely afraid of black supremacy, but they are afraid of ignorant black supremacy. Now, this danger is just the one to appeal to the sympathy of the North. The Northern people are not in love with ignorance and illiteracy. They deplore it. They hate it and take every means in their power to banish it from their states. They naturally sympathize with any people in deploring it and who are making honest efforts to remove it from among them. Hence, they are pouring out millions of dollars to aid the South and are sending competent teachers there to enlighten the ignorant and to lift up the black man and white man alike from the darkness and ignorance to which they had been doomed by slavery and by those would-be Negro problem solvers. But it is worthy of empathetic remark that the men in the South who are loudest in their outcry against the ignorance of the Negro are not those who wish to have him instructed, but those who would make his ignorance a reason for depriving him of the right secured to him under the Constitution. But again, when before in the history of the Southern people have they been alarmed by the presence of ignorance among them? When before did they ask the nation to assist them in stemming the tide of ignorance? The whole history of the legislation of the South, by the South I mean the ruling class of the South, it is on the side of ignorance. Their laws have made it a crime to enlighten the black man's ignorance. It has been the policy of the ruling class there to oppose education not only for the blacks, but for the poor whites as well. But as I have said, this cries raised not for help to educate the Negro, but as an excuse for taking him the right of suffrage by which he can in some measure promote his own education and the education of those about him. But admitting what I do not admit, that the ignorance of the Negro is recognized by the South as a source of danger and admitting the sincerity of Southern men who are professing to deplore it, I have to say to them, if you could stand the Negro when he was a slave, you can stand it now that he is free, at least a reasonable length of time for his education. Clearly enough, the remedy is not in the abridgment of his rights, but in the education of his mind. It is not in invading the plain provisions of the Constitution, but in teaching him the duties imposed by the Constitution, not in taking away his vote, but in teaching him how to use it.
To me, there is something very audacious and insolent rather than pathetic and persuasive in the language employed by Southern men on this question. There is something of the old time Southern swagger and assumption in their tone and bearing, a tone and bearing which is entirely out of date, out of place and out of harmony with the age body of our time, a tone and bearing which invites rebuke rather than sympathy, disgust rather than approbation. Such men as Senator Butler of South Carolina should remember that there is such a thing as modesty as well as decency for men of such antecedents as theirs, and that it is neither modest nor decent for them to coolly propose the expulsion of citizen innocent of crime from the state of South Carolina or from any other state in the American Union. It is only a little while ago that Senator Butler and his class were in arms against the government which these same Negro citizens loyally and bravely endeavored to save from their disloyal hands. But let me say again, the South neither really fears the ignorance of the Negro, nor the supremacy of the Negro. It is not the ignorant Negro, but the intelligent North that it fears, not the supremacy of a different race from itself, but the supremacy of the Republican Party. It is not the men who are emancipated, but the people who emancipated them that disturb its repose. In other words, the trouble is not racial, but political. It is not the race and color of the vote. Disguise this as it may, the real thing that troubles the South is the Republican Party, its principles, and its ascendancy in Southern states and the nation. When it talks of Negro ignorance, Negro supremacy, it means this, and simply this, only this. It uses the word Negro simply as a means to the end of awakening popular prejudice and enlisting its influence in favor of its bad cause, a cause for which they have shown themselves capable of committing every description of frauds, the most scandalous, and cruelty, the most barbarous. We all know that the Negro problem would vanish into thin air, would utterly disappear like the mist before the morning sun if the intelligent Negroes of the South would renounce their connection to the Republican Party and support only the Democratic Party. What the South wants and what it means to have peaceably, if it can, or forcibly, if it must, is a solid Democratic Party South and Democratic rule in the nation. There is not an intelligent man at the South that does not know this. And there is not an honest man at the South who, if he would speak candidly on the subject, would deny this. The trouble is that the people of the North do not see this in its true light. Honest themselves, they cannot readily believe that others are not alike honest. It is in some sense creditable in them that they have never believed in the story of outrages committed against the Negro voters of the South because they themselves would not be guilty of such outrages. They have been easily imposed upon by the pretended fear of a Negro supremacy professed by the South. But let me be more intelligible. My idea about the problem business is this. When a case has been in litigation before a court of highest resort, and that case has been solemnly adjudicated in that court, that case is finished and all the parties to it must submit to the decision or become lawbreakers and criminals. The case goes into history henceforth res adjudicata. It is settled. If this beneficent rule did not exist, 
there would be no end to litigation and no response to the public mind. To make my meaning still more clear, when in England a few years ago, Northampton saw fit to send Mr. Bradlaugh, an infidel, to represent it in the British House of Commons, and he was not allowed to take his seat, the admission of an infidel to the House of Commons was a problem. But when he continued to knock at the door of the house till he was finally admitted, the infidel problem, so far as the right of membership of that house was concerned, was solved. Again, we are not the only people whose rights have been denied on the ground of race. Our brother Shem has had a taste of proscription as well as ourselves. No Jew was at one time eligible to membership in the Parliament of Great Britain, but after long years of agitation of the question, Mr. Baring, an eminent Jew, was admitted to a seat in Parliament. The Jewish problem, when Mr. Baring was seated, was ended. I mean this. When the American people declared their independence of Great Britain and made good that declaration by victory in a seven years war, the problem of American independence was solved, and there was never anything afterwards concerning it which could be called problematical. It was a fixed fact, and has remained such until now, and will remain so, I trust, forever. There is a grand agitation now in progress in Great Britain for local self-government at the head of which Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Parnell. If Great Britain shall grant home rule to Ireland, the Irish problem will be solved, and it will be nonsense thereafter to speak of it as an unsolved problem. Our American women are asking for a 16th Amendment to the Constitution, whereby they may vote. They ought to have it. If the American people shall adopt such an amendment, the women problem will cease to exist. In like manner, when the Negro was declared free by the highest authority in the land, when the whole system of his bondage was broken up, when he was invested by the organic law of the land with the title, dignity, and immunity of an American citizen, and when it was declared that any discrimination made by any state against him on account of race or color was unlawful, I hold that this race condition could no longer be considered a problem. The thing was done. It was finished. The nation had taken its position, and all the parts of the nation must ultimately adjust themselves to the whole. The individual states may be great, but the United States is greater. The mountain will not and cannot go to Mahomet, so Mahomet must and will in the end go to the mountain. Herein is the ground of my hope, the trend of civilization, the power of large bodies to attract small ones, the force of national greatness, the inclination to the stronger rather than to the weak and human forces will ultimately bring the individual states in line with the federal body. I affirm that while the national government shall remain in the hands of the Republican Party and under the principles of that party, no state will or can permanently disenfranchise any of its citizens because of race or color or previous condition. Attempts may be made to do this, but the race problem in that respect is solved and the case cannot be permanently reopened. But I am asked, what of the future? And will the various peoples of this country ever be thoroughly assimilated? Or to speak more plainly, will they ever intermarry? My answer is, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We should not cross the stream till we have come to it. 
Whether such marriages will ever become common or not is no matter of vital concern to anybody at this day. It is mere speculation and is utterly without practical importance so far as the rights of the American people are concerned. It touches no question of politics, statesmanship, or religion. Individual interests, personal preferences, and public sentiment may be safely left to regulate the relations of the races in respect to intermarriage. Such, I think, is the view that common sense will take of it. But such does not seem to be the view taken of it by some of our people. White, black, and mixed. There seems to be a fascination about the subject which makes it impossible for men to let alone. They thrust it into our faces on all occasions, in season and out of season, and seem to stress because we cannot solve the problem for them. Some of them say that the repugnance of the white race of the of the black makes marriages between them impossible. And yet they proceed with great warmth and eloquence to denounce it as a thing to be closely watched and guarded against and by no means encouraged. If the thing is impossible to happen, no one should be afraid that it will happen. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been requested to say an encouraging word to our people before I leave from my post of duty at Port-au-Prince and if I have not already said such a word, I find it quite easy to do so now. From every view I have been able to take of the moral and political situation of our cause, before and since my arrival in the country, I am hopeful. I have no doubt whatever of the future. I know that there are times in this history of all reforms when the future looks dark, when the friends of reform are impatient and despondent, when they cannot see the end from the beginning, when the truth that is plain to them compels them to reject the honesty of all who receive it, when they meet with opposition where they expected cooperation, when they meet with treachery where they expected fidelity and defeat they expected victory. I, for one, have gone through all this. I have had fifty years of it, and yet I have not lost either heart or hope. It is true that we have been sadly disappointed in the action, or rather non-action, of the 51st Congress. The platform of the Republican Party adopted at Chicago plainly committed the Republican Party to some measure of protection to the Republican voters of the South. We had right to expect the pledge there given would find fulfillment in the action of this Republican Congress. We have been disappointed, sadly disappointed, following the advice of a new leader from Pennsylvania, but a leader not of the Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner mold, this Congress has preferred protection to commerce and property to protection to personal and political liberty. We'd hoped that it would adopt either the federal election bill or the Blair educational bill. It has done neither. The omission is, on the face of it, discouraging. But what then? Shall we get mad and denounce and renounce the Republican Party? Has that party sinned away its day of grace? Are there no remaining reasons for giving it our confidence? I entertain no such thought. The federal election and educational bills are not dead, nor are their Senate and in the House may permit delay, but they will not suffer defeat. The President of the United States is true to his trust. No man since General Grant has stood by us more firmly than has General Harrison. He has let it be known openly and empathetically that he is for stepping to the very verge of constitutional limitations to secure honest elections, a free vote, 
and a fair count in every state in the Union, and he is not the man to take any steps backward. I admit that during many years to come, the colored man will have to endure prejudice against his race and color, but this constitutes no problem to vex and disturb the course of legislation. The world was never yet without prejudice. There exists prejudice in favor of and against classes among men of the same race and color. There is prejudice between religious sects and denominations, between Catholic and Protestant, between families and individuals. The time may never come this side the millennium when men will not ask, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But what business has government, state or national, with these prejudices? Why should grave statesmen concern themselves with them? The business of government is to hold its broad and shield over all and to see that every American citizen is alike and equally protected in his civil and personal rights. My confidence is strong and high in the nation as a whole. I believe in its justice and in its power. I believe that it means to keep its word with its colored citizens. I believe in its progress and its moral as well as its material civilization. Its trend is in the right direction. Its fundamental principles are sound. Its conception of humanity and of human rights is clear and comprehensive. Its progress is fettered by no state religion tending to repress liberal thought, by no order of nobility tending to keep down the toiling masses, by no divine right theory tending to national stagnation under the idea of stability. It stands out free and clear, with nothing to obstruct its view of the lessons of reason and experience. It may be said, as has been said, that I am growing old and am easily satisfied with things as they are. When our young men shall have worked and waited for victory as long as I have worked and waited, they will not only learn to have patience with the men opposed to them, but with me also for having patience with such. I have seen dark hours in my life, and I have seen the darkness gradually disappearing and the light gradually increasing. One by one, I have seen obstacles removed, errors corrected, prejudices softened, proscriptions relinquished, and my people advancing in all the elements that go to make up the sum of general welfare. And I remember that God reigns in eternity, and that whatever delays... Whatever disappointments and discouragements may come, truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. Frederick Douglass, 1890. I leave you with this. Focus your thoughts on what is true, noble, righteous, pure, lovable, or admirable. On some virtue or on something praiseworthy. Think about these things. <laughs>